This is the Let's Get Real Estate Show with your host, Danielle Chason. Full-time investor, strategic consultant, motivational coach, sought-after speaker, and host of your number one real estate investing show, Let's Get Real Estate, where real people are doing real estate. Hey, it's Matt Frederick at the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. Today, I'm going to talk to you about how do you sail your ship to the next destination, and that could be in a different province, different country, could even be down south. I'm going to talk a bit about that, and uh, we'll have some fun doing it. Hey, everybody. Danielle Chason here, and I am back with the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. I am excited for today's guest. We have Matthew Frederick. Woo, woo. Can't wait to get into the topic that we have at hand, because I know a lot of people struggle with this one. But uh, in keeping with our theme of the podcast, this is where we're bringing real people doing real estate. And I happen to know Matt personally, and he is as real as it gets. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. So excited to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Danielle. It's really great to be here. Looking forward to this. I know this is going to be so exciting because we're talking about something that uh, a lot of people now, especially in Ontario with the landlord tenant laws being so restrictive, um, it, it, a lot of people are moving to different markets. And so today what we want to bring to the table is um, managing properties out of province, out of state, out of country, because Matthew does a lot of investing outside of where he lives. And I know most people like to stay close to home, keep the control, but Matthew's really, uh, really got some solid systems in place and a whole checklist of eight things that he goes through in order to help him systematize his business um, working remotely. So uh, I'm super excited, Matthew. Um, I want you, before we start and get into that, um, I would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience, a little bit about your background. Uh, I know you have a military background, which plays a lot in what you do today. And um, I would love to hear more about that, how it's influenced you and how you got into real estate. Well, Danielle, I bought my first house at 19 years old, but not as an investor. I just, uh, as an immigrant, I wanted to own a piece of Canada. So I came here when I was seven. My parents always told me you have to work twice as hard to get as far. And I did. And by the time I was 19, I bought my first property. Now, I had a basement apartment and we shared the kitchen and I had my the main floor and upstairs. So today you probably call that house hacking. Back in those days, we just called it share kitchen or share accommodations. But again, I was not an investor. That was the only house I was going to buy. And then my brother, four years later, by the time I was a teacher, uh, said to me, you know what? I want you to invest in real estate. I'm like, I'm not doing it. Uh, he says, I'm a cop. I have a gun. I'm your older brother. I'm going to tell you what to do. Because he knew that I was a systems guy. He's more of a visionary. I'm more of a systems guy. So he sort of pulled me into investing. So without him, I don't think I would have gotten into investing. And then, uh, so back in those days, I started, I bought a second house and third house and fourth house. I did a few buy, fix and sells. But by the time I had about 12 or 13 houses, I realized I was almost a slave to the house. Sure, I was making some good money and I had my full-time job. But I remember I come home after work, I'm thinking all my extra money goes into these houses. I'm broker than ever. I have lots of property and I'm serving these houses. And after a while, I thought, you know what, maybe I'll get something bigger. And I got into a multifamily building where I had a few, a few units, obviously, in one spot, which really helped me. And the fact that I was able to get a superintendent because it was a 12-unit building, then that person was carrying a lot of the load while I was just sort of asset managing it. So I really liked that. 
Now, years and years later, I got into self-storage, which is probably my best investment because in a sense, I have no, no, no fridge, no stove, no washer, no dryer, no kids, no pets, and very low maintenance. And that was all great. Not exciting though, but great. Then I got into building and uh, started building houses, largest 113 house subdivision, but normally 35 house subdivisions and buildings, four-story, uh, 35 to 50 uh, condos in those buildings. And of course, I, I buy in uh, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Arizona, Florida, and Belize. And now I'm looking at up, upstate New York. So now I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, and I've had a lot of great coaches, people like you, Danielle. Uh, what you do for people, I had some coaches along the way to help me. So therefore, it worked out better than, let's say, it would have if I was doing it just on my own. That's a, a blurb of my, my history. You have a wealth of knowledge behind all of that. I'm so excited. But Belize, I mean, who's investing in Belize? Like you're running some, okay, so um, you're doing a subdivision down there. Am I right? Well, actually, we're doing small, uh, small subdivisions. So three houses at a time. I wouldn't call them subdivisions, but, you know, my brother got there years and years ago. Uh, we set a foundation. I got there in 2007 and uh, we did 35 lots. But years later, my brother retired there full time. And uh, first, you have to spend a few years understanding the ground, knowing the people, becoming a local uh, before you actually go out there and just try to bring your own systems to a place. And a lot of people do that. They literally go to a place and they tell the place how it should be. Whereas we went there and we learned the ground. And obviously, we're a local there now. A lot of things work a lot better that way. Right. And um, um, so, yeah, so I, I would love to know, like, as you, because you expanded out into the States first and then eventually went down South. And so I would love to hear a little bit more about the challenges that you had as you were going along and the challenges that you were faced with that you had to overcome. Um, and quite selfishly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there for myself and for the people in the audience that are moving and, and investing outside of their local markets, I would love to know how you overcame those challenges. So I don't have to make those same mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what I'll do, I'll go through an eight step plan with you, but keep this in mind today, because properties in Canada, even Hamilton, Ontario, a house today could be $780,000 because the prices are so high now, all of a sudden buying across the border where even though the dollar is about 25 to 27 cents higher, the fact is the prices are one third the price that are here. So all of a sudden now it's making more sense that you can actually drive three hours to Windsor or four hours to Belleville or one and a half hour across the U.S. border through Niagara Falls. And you can buy in Buffalo, you can buy in Rochester and you're buying at one third the price all of a sudden that dollar value doesn't matter as much anymore, that dollar exchange. And the fact that you're going two hours, how it doesn't matter as much anymore. So that's why people could consider uh, buying in the US now. Uh, but really, if, if you're gonna buy away from here, you always have to think of two things. Number one, you have to have a great vehicle or a great system. And a great system is really many little systems. Like a car will get me to work, a property will get me to where I want to be financially, but a car has many subsystems. It's got the fuel system. It's got the braking system. It's got the cooling system. It's got many subsystems. So we have to create, I would say, eight subsystems 
if you're about to invest somewhere else. And the second thing you have to consider is to solve a problem. The best way to do it, I believe, is to find something common and then try to do what's called comparison. So if I want to buy at a distance, to me, it's almost like Columbus sailing from England across to America, and he needed a tall ship. So what are the components of a tall ship with with sails and everything? And I compare each component. For instance, the sail could be the wind. uh, What's the rudder? And I compare each component to whatever component I have to set up in order to get me across the, the ocean. So what I'll do, I'll just show you those eight systems. So does that sort of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm interested in hearing. I love your analogy with the ship and having to like make those adjustments and look at each component. I'm really interested in hearing what those components are and how you made those adjustments. And and even just like the challenge with each component and then how you overcame them and made the adjustments. Yeah. So I would say the first component would be the the system that is a propulsion system. Like for instance, oh, actually, I'll take a step back. The first is your destination. Where do you want to go? Like, does it actually make sense to go where I want to go with that tall ship? And therefore, if I'm going to invest in a city or a state or a province or a country, I'm going to do 10 quick things. Number one, what is the inventory where I'm going? Is it a three-month inventory or is it a seven-month inventory or is it a 12-month inventory? If a property sits on the market for three months, it's a hot market, one to three. So therefore, if I'm going to go into a hot market, I know I'm paying big dollars right now. Maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I want to go into a six-month-to-sell market where I'm going to buy something, fix it up, hold on to it as the market begins to go up, and then make a lot of money there. What is the net migration? Meaning, are more people coming to that city than actually leaving? Is the unemployment going to be okay? Is it going up or going down? How about education? A lot of people might go to St. Catharines to go to school, but do they stay there? People might go to Kitchener to go to school. Can they get a job there? Like that's a big difference. What's the GDP? What resources do I get? The transportation of the system, in other, in other words, being able to move around that area. What's the tax reductions? What's the industry? And then what are the major stores coming in? So that's just simply the destination that I'm going to. Those 10 things let me know, is it even worth looking there? Because if I don't have good for those things, I'm not going to waste my time there. Someone might say to me, go to Roanoke, Virginia. Okay, let me study it first before I actually go there and start investing there. The second thing would be, and to me, that's the, that's the destination, right? You know, which I think is really important. The second thing would be, let's say the rudder. Like you have to steer that ship. You have to set your course. And to set your course, you have to know exactly what you want to do. So therefore, I would look at the economic development of the area, find the economic development manager of that city. What direction are they going in for real estate? Like maybe I want to build something huge, but maybe they don't want that. Maybe I'm thinking of doing uh, something that they don't care about because that becomes a problem. If you decide what you want to do, but they don't want to do it, then they put up roadblocks. So I want to understand what they want. I want to understand what resources are there for me. Is there government money coming in to help me to do what I want to do? So therefore, the rudder is being steered in the right direction. At the same time, what is the layout of the city? For instance, a city has a core, and then from the core to, let's say, the first Walmart, that might be 70 years. It might take about 70 years worth of houses to get to that, to that first Walmart, meaning if, if the core started in uh, you know, 1950, let's say, then by 2020, uh, the houses at that distance being built in 2020 would be where the Walmart is. So between the core and the Walmarts, 
then I want to look at the corridor going directly to it. Let's say I want multifamily building. I know multifamily buildings were built in the 50s and 60s because it was, it was affordable. Today, when you build a building, you have to sell the condos to cover the cost, right? So therefore, I know where to look. Really close to the core, about 50 years ago, is where I'll find my multifamily buildings. So you have to understand the area. <clears throat> Number three would be the sale, which means my propulsion system. And that would be, for instance, uh, what is the city, city department's saying about development, about building? What's the zoning? What's the bylaw? Is it going to be difficult for me to improve that building, do additions? Is it going to be very difficult for me to, to deal with something where I'm buying in the city, but on a regional road? Because if I'm buying in the city on a regional road, now I might be dealing with the city and the region, that's two different tiers, in order to get something approved. So I do need to understand who I'm dealing with here. At the same time, I want to talk to the counselors. For instance, if I'm buying in Ward 1 and Ward 2, I want to get to know those counselors. I want to know what their visions are, and I want to get to understand who they are. So you see, so far, understanding the destination, the stats about it, understanding the course, the direction I'm going, is the economic development matching what I want to do, and is the propulsion system, meaning how am I going to uh, be able to push myself into the right area, are those three things working so far? And that's so far just three of eight things. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's great. I, I think it's so important to understand the area and the market that you're wanting to invest in. Like when we invest in outside markets, we always look at what are the main driving economic factors and what are the main industries that are supporting that economy. You absolutely have to have, um, you have to have um, a growing economy in order for this to work. And what we do, because in a growing economy, that's where you're going to get some appreciation. That's where you're going to have low vacancy, all of that stuff. So I'm 100% on board with all of that. And you, you touched on the one thing about um, just making sure that um, it's not just the economic drivers, but also that the city is in alignment with that. So when you go to the city, they're able to give you, like you mentioned, grants or some support um, that what you want to do is in alignment with the city's mandates. And so um, it's way easier when your goals align with the municipality's goals. And then that way, there's a lot less red tape and you get a lot less um, headache trying to make it work. I see a lot of investors, I'm sure you have too, Matthew, where they're going into areas and trying to do things and trying to trailblaze. And it's just life is really difficult for them. Uh, but when you go to the areas that are just a little bit more favorable in your favor, then you can just focus on doing what you do well, which is you know providing housing that is needed in certain areas. Yeah, and that's so true. You have to be humble as opposed to, I want to go there and do what I want to do. Like right now, people do a lot of burr. Um, people say to me, why did I do so many strategies? Well, over 38 years, really, it's because the world and the seasons changed. Like back in my day, interest rates were 6%. Properties were appreciating not 2%. Properties were appreciating 5%, not 18%. And even if you were to fix a property up, and it should be $200,000 more, the appraisers were so conservative that they'd never give you that bump in value. So therefore, Burr works now, the last 10 years, sure, but it didn't work always and it, it would not work forever. But if that's just the one thing you have in your, in your uh, quiver, then if there's the one error you have, then guess what? If it works forever, fantastic, but it may not. So you always have to have a backup plan. Now, <clears throat> number four would be, 
understand understand the landlord tenant act in the area that you're in. And to me, that's like logistics. If I'm sailing, sailing across the ocean, I need to know I have food and supplies in my in my uh, in my hole in that ship. And I need to understand what are the rules for rental, what are the rules for eviction. Is the adjudicator leaning towards me or leaning towards the tenant? How long does it take to actually go and get a case done? Is it six months? And at the same time, I want to get a paralegal in that area so that I have at least that advice. And to me, again, that's like having your supplies in in your ship's hull. Next thing would be the strategy. And to me, the strategy is the cargo that you have in the ship that you're taking from England to the U.S. What is my cargo? To me, that's the strategy. In other words, how I make money. Based on the first four things that I've seen, should I do a buy, hold, and rent? Are the rental rates, the unit sizes, the tenant class, uh, the, the expenses, operation costs? Does that make sense for buy, hold, and rent? Or does it make more sense for buy, fix, and sell? Or does it make more sense for secure the right to buy and wholesale it? See, I let the system tell me what strategy works best. I don't come to the table and say, I will bring this strategy. I have a fork and we're going to use a fork for everything, including eating soup. It's not going to happen that way. Now, the next point, number six, would be my acquisition team. The most important person on my acquisition team, and this would be like the crew on your ship. The acquisition team, to me, the inspector is the number one person that if I'm buying at a distance, I need the property inspected. But inspectors are not that great. So which means I have to have it inspected, and then I have to have an HVAC person come in and quote on it. In other words, the HVAC person comes in, they're looking for mistakes, and they'll quote on whatever is wrong or whatever is not wrong with it, but they're the expert. I make sure I have my plumber come in or a plumber come in. I evaluate a few plumbers, electrician, a roofer foundation person, and a balcony person if I'm buying a building. So not only am I paying for the inspection, probably 1500 bucks, but I'm paying probably a couple of hundred for each of these guys to come in, each of these people to come in, and now I have a complete picture that I need to understand an appraiser who appraises land, appraises a building, if I'm doing houses, who appraises the houses. But the appraiser has to know how to appraise what it is now and what it will be after it's fixed up. Then my third person will be the mortgage agent. Do they have private funds in that area? Are they into trust companies or even credit unions, maybe some family banks in that country? And then when it comes to property management, I need to have my property management team in place. Of course, you have to have your lawyer, insurance, your general contractor, and your demo guy. But really the inspector and the inspection team, that's my eyes on the ground. And that could be a thousand miles away, but as long as that whole team is doing what they're doing, I'm good to go. And then the appraiser to get my value. And of course, the mortgage so I'm able to finance. Now, number seven to me would be, what is the tax situation? Now, I'm not a tax accountant. I'm not, a, uh, I'm not giving you tax advice. But let me give an example. If someone's buying in the US, people say you should have an LLC, limited liability corporation, right? But if you don't understand what that is, you could be in trouble. Which means I need to understand if, if my ship goes to port, are there tax or port fees for going into port. And this is the same for me, understanding of if I'm going to make some money in a different country, am I taking that money home? Or am I going to lose most of it? So the LLC is like a flow through. Think of it like, like you have a source of water. You have a pipe that the water flows through and a bucket it flows into. The bucket is your pocket. The flow is money. The Canadian government sees a pipe, a flow through, 
as a company. So they want to tax the pipe and they want to tax the bucket. Whereas the U.S. understands that that's just a flow through. So then you, you would get something called an LLC, limited liability, sorry, an LLP, limited liability partnership, where the Canadian government sees that as a business. And, the, and so does the U.S. government, right? So LLP, option one, you might say I'm renting and I'm going to do something called they withhold 30% of my gross rent right away. And then to do that, I obviously file a, a form, you know, 1042. And then I make sure that the, the U.S. government knows by March 15th that I've made this money there. Canadian government knows you made that money. They won't double tax you. Or to get a better let's say, uh, you know, uh, rate, what you do is you actually file a U.S. tax return, which means you, 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 you file the form W8ECI, which says, I'm not going to withhold 30%. And then you want to get an ITIN number, which is a tax number. You got to file the form W7ITIN. And then it, now you can then fill out a tax return form 1040NR, non-resident, but you can take all your expenses now. You can do your mortgage expense, your insurance expense, your property tax expense, utilities expense. So what I'm saying is you have to understand the system. So this is not a tax conversation here. This is just a guy who said a thing. But the fact is you have to understand how it works for you. And then, you know, uh, lastly, actually, before I go into that, any thoughts about what I just said? Yeah, you know what? I... Absolutely. I just want to preface anybody who wants to invest in a different market, whether it's locally within Canada, within Canada's borders, or if you want to go outside of that, I highly, highly, highly suggest you hire, or if you already have a team in place, speak to your accountant, your lawyer, and make sure that the structure makes sense for you. Everybody's situation is unique. And um, all of the stuff that Matthew has been talking about are all things that you're going to have to learn and get that information from your accountant. So I 100% agree with you. There's absolutely a way to do it. A lot of people are like, oh, it's not worth it because they double tax. You know, it can be done. So I just want the audience to know it can be done. And Matthew's living proof of that because he's one of the many Canadians that are investing in the States. Uh, but just make sure you talk to your tax team. And then talking about, um, um, talking about, you know, the, the, the cargo on the ship and your, your exit strategies, what I loved is like, it kind of all goes hand in hand together. I think Matthew with, you know, you said, don't, don't go in and say, this is what I want to do and make it happen. Go in. Once you've analyzed that market, see what's the right strategy for that market. And if you want to be a burr person and that the market doesn't fit, check the boxes, then go to a different market. But if you see that there's a different strategy in that market you're vetting, maybe you shift your strategy. So I always tell people, don't try to put a square peg in a round hole. And essentially, you know, that's where you got to leave your ego and your pride at the door and then let the market dictate what you're going to do. Or you find a market that will work within your parameters of what you're comfortable doing. Um, so I just, I wanted to point out how like your, your, your eight steps, they all kind of speak to each other. They're all intertwined. They're not very, they're not um, unique. They are codependent. Would you say that's true? Because I'm, I'm really starting to see kind of how it's like a puzzle and they all kind of go together. And really, that's the important thing, because as I said, even with a car, you, if you have a, a propulsion system, you get up to speed 60 kilometers per hour. But if you don't have a braking system, you can have a hard day. If you don't have a steering <laughs> system, say, say hello to the wall. Right. So each system itself is unique, but they all come together to complete your 
your goal. And my goal is to get to work. Your goal is to build wealth through real estate, and you're going to use this ship or this process to get overseas. And then, you know, just finally, who is going to fund that that journey? The Queen of England, you know. So your investors, you have to be able to package this information for the right person. Am I talking to folks who just have $50,000 to invest or people who have a million dollars to invest? The main difference is if you're talking to somebody who's got a lot of money to invest, you can't just say to them, this is great cash flow. This is great return on investment. This is great appreciation. This is great uh, you know, area. I'm a great person. That is not going to impress them because their concerns about losing their money is more important than that. They want to understand how are you going to liability protect me so that if anything goes wrong, I'm not going to lose my fortune liability wise. How are you going to tax wise protect me so at least I make more than what I, I spend? How are you going to show me the systems that you have in place that gives me confidence that if anything goes wrong with you, there are systems that are there. And what are my exit strategies for when I'm on that boat? How do I jump off that boat, right? Uh, what are my exit strategies in the whole five-year process? Now, once you've explained that to a wealthy person, now you've earned the right to say, here's the cash flow, here's the ROI, here's the appreciation, and I am great. You know, if you do it the other way around, around, if you just tell them how great the opportunity is, well, that's because you want to make money. They want to save money and not lose their money more than they want to make money. So you got to think of them first. Then the property you have has to be the right prototype that if you do this, it sets the foundation and a great story for your next property to get financed in that area. Uh, yeah, capital preservation all day long for the lenders. Um, you know, that's, I think a lot of people miss that. Um, so for those of you that are listening, when you are raising capital and you're talking to your lenders, um, capital preservation is the number one thing that's most important to your lenders. So I love that you brought that up, Matthew. Um, there was something else that you had mentioned that I, I wanted to put out there. When you're, when you're dealing with um, systems, I think... I think that's what puts, like I'm a systems girl, everybody knows that about me, but when you put these systems in place, it really negates the um, potential errors. So it limits your losses, it limits your mistakes, because when you have a system to follow, then you don't have to remember, you just go through the system and follow the, follow the plan, essentially. When you have a plan, it's almost like having a it's almost like having a map, right? So if you're in that ship and then you don't have a map and you just go and sail, you're going to be out in the water for a long time if you don't have a if you don't have a map to follow, right? If you don't have a course to follow. So I love that. You did mention one thing though, Matt. I have to say, you said, you know, what what are my plans when you're talking about financing? Like, how am I going to jump off the ship? Um, I don't want to jump off the ship. <laughs> if I have to jump, that's probably not a good strategy. Um, so that's why having a plan that way you can walk off the ship when you get to port, right? Um, so tell me, here's the one thing I, I do. I'm very curious about. I think out of all of this, a lot of this stuff you can do remotely. You can vet the market. You can make the phone calls with the city uh, and then, you know, see all the people uh, make, you know, especially now with Zoom after COVID, everybody's very Zoom friendly. Um, so you can make the connections um, that you need and do your due diligence. But what about the people on the ground? I think that's the biggest part. Like, how do you find, you're talking about your team, you know, that's your, um, your crew, right, on the ship. 
So how do you how do you identify the right crew for your ship when you're here and they're in Belize? Well, I think the great thing is if you're talking to a great mortgage agent or you happen to be talking to a great realtor or even a great banker, they tend to know people in the area. So ultimately, if I'm talking to an inspector or an appraiser, they tend to know each other. So I tend to bounce one off each other just to get a feel of each person's thought, number one. Number two, you know, I have to depend on my gut as well. So my gut, if I find myself um, stiffening up, if I'm talking to you, my wall is going up, I may not know why, but my gut instinct is telling me that you're attacking me some way, shape or form. So it's not just your resume now. I have to listen to my gut to, to say to myself, why is my gut instinct tensing up? That's the second part. You got to trust your gut because it's been around for a long time. If you don't have a good gut, get somebody else who's got a good gut and have them, uh, you know, let's say, uh, interview the people for you. And number three, obviously, I want to know, um, I want to see their history. You can't predict the future from the past, but a history is a good indicator of what goes on. And then I have conversations with them not related to the actual task itself. If I'm talking to my HVAC person or my inspector, I want to know more about, you know, why they became that. Um, at the same time, is this something that they love doing? At the same time, what is their greater purpose? People have a hard time hiding, let's say, the truth in these off questions, like what is your greater purpose? How'd you get into it? Um, and you know, that kind of helps me to understand who they are. And obviously I'm looking at uh, some referrals as well. But the most important thing is to get uh, advice from each person about each person. If you can go and meet them, you meet them all at one time, that would be phenomenal. And even with my investors, I tend to spend time getting to know my investors. Now, the last two years, I haven't been meeting them the same way. I used to meet them at you know, fashion shows or at a gala or a charity event. A school is opening up or private schools having some sort of a, a, a you know student show. I meet people in these areas and I don't talk to them about real estate. I talk to them about life. And then from there, I build a relationship and obviously they want to do what I'm doing, right? You know, lately, it's a little bit different because we don't have as many of those things. But it's still building that relationship, getting to talk to somebody a number of times. And then just, it's just really quickly, they invest with me because I behave a certain way. I don't just tell them something. I behave a certain way. I have a lifestyle that I live. Uh, for instance, I, I may get up. If I'm going to an appointment, I may leave half hour early. So if I see something great, I can stop and check on it. Um, that in itself is a, is a behavior that people respect. And even though I'm buying at a distance, the fact is my investor may be local. And about jumping off the ship, you know, when you're in a plane, they want to know that uh, on the runway, you have exits. But those exits make no sense at 50,000 feet. They just want to know that there's an exit. As long as they know there's an exit, they'll stay on the ship. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure that I'm not having to jump off the boat <laughs> in the yeah, middle of yeah. the ocean. No, but, you know, yeah, ultimately, I mean, we're that you we're can. Talking about that, but yeah. that's what you were talking about with um, Is important. with your lenders. I mean, the lenders need to know that they need to they can get off the ship or off the plane safely. And that's ultimately um, where we're coming at. But I don't know if I, I'm a good swimmer, but I don't know if I'd want to jump off in the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
So, yeah. So I, you know, I love all of that. Everything that you said, I, it resonates so true for me. Um, you got to trust your gut, but at the end of the day, what's important is, um, cause I love that you're saying when you're vetting your people, you're talking about things that are outside of the job. And I think a lot of people get stuck on, you know, interviewing their, their, um, qualifications as far as deliverability. But I think those are skills that always can be taught and you learn together, but your integrity is what you are. Your behavior is what you are. It's a reflection of who you are. And uh, I think that's probably more, more important than anything. And when it comes to your gut feeling, I tell my kids this all the time. And I, again, my students, like, if it doesn't feel right, something's not right. You got to investigate. So uh, trust that gut. And um, if you don't want to investigate, then maybe you just say, Mm, this is just not the right person for me. I'm going to keep looking. You, you don't need to spend time investigating, but pay attention to that feeling. So um, thank you for sharing that with the audience. What is it? I got one last question for you. What is the hardest, like, what is the biggest challenge that you've had overcoming going? Actually, I got two more questions. I lied. Two more questions. But what is the biggest, what is the biggest challenge you've had kind of um, over with going either in the States or overseas or down South, um, what has been the biggest challenge for you to overcome? Mostly my integrity, because once you go to a new level, which means you've gone to something higher, like let's say you've gone to a different step. People have to understand that you have to bring a level of integrity to survive at that step, a level of discipline to survive at that step. And at the same time, uh, a level of um, managing your greed at that next step. I thought I was a great person, but you know what? At every level that I go up, I find that the people that I'm meeting, the wealthier they are, it's not the nicer they are. Sometimes the wealthier they are, the nastier they are. Sometimes it's, I don't care about you. I care only about my family. So I'll put you into a deal or do something with you, sell you something, that's going to destroy you. And I don't care because I'm rich. You know, it's almost like Coca-Cola. It's a great drink, but what is it, what is it really? Liquid invert sugar and carbon dioxide. It's something that your body's trying to get rid of all day long, but people make money selling that. Right. And, you know, I find that the higher I go, I come across people with just horrible integrity. And I have to say to myself, should I convert to their way of thinking or should I try to do it the right way? And, you know, maybe not get as far. So it's a challenge with integrity. I failed a number of times. I failed with my taxes. I failed with some development projects that probably didn't go as well as they should. I try to get everybody out, but some people can walk away from that and they couldn't care less. So the biggest challenge is within, you know, dealing with people who are higher level and not bending myself towards their greed, trying to stay the right course. That's huge for me, right? <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I think if you use your moral integrity as a compass, you can never go wrong. And you just got to stay true to that at the end of the day. So, um, that is so true. true, especially in this business. Um, and especially when you do go to different markets, um, things are very different in South America. So having yeah. that anchor will always help guide you. Um, so my last question is, what is the biggest skill, like what is the, the skill that has served you best? So what, what do you think that is the most important skill to bring you um, across the finish line when you're going into another country? Really, it's the ability to listen and communicate. So to tell a story, tell a story about what I want to happen in an area 
or to tell a story to my investor, tell a story to the person who, let's say I'm buying a property from. I'll give you an example. A lot of people say, if you want to buy a house, you go into the neighborhood, you find the ugliest house. And then you obviously want to make an offer in that ugly house, buy it cheap, fix and sell it. Well, that's only one way to look at it. I do the opposite as well. I find the nicest house. I find the prettiest girl on the street. Because sometimes the most beautiful girl does not get asked to the prom. And because the house is so expensive, looks so great, no one knocks on the door and asks them to sell it. And sometimes it's a great house because that person has spent so much time painting that canvas. But you know what? That canvas is now full. And guess what? People are who they are. They want to paint another canvas. Just because the house is perfect doesn't mean they're going to be satisfied because they want to paint another canvas. So I might talk to the most expensive house on the street, not the worst. No one, no one goes to them because people think they're pretty. They get asked all the time, but they don't. And then I can say to them, well, what's your next thing? What's your next canvas? Can I help you get to your next canvas? If I get a realtor to help you get to your next canvas, can I buy your property? Or perhaps I have your next canvas already. I can sell to you and buy your property. Or maybe I might find your next canvas under contract and assign it to you, wholesale it to you. And then you can now leave your great property. It's not about the money, I tell them. It's about painting that canvas again. Because people are who they are. They want to continue to do great things. And therefore, I get my best deals from the most expensive house on the street as opposed to finding the, the ugliest house on the street. You could do both, right? And I do both. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a absolutely. different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Please go ahead. So challenging. So what you're saying is challenging your thinking a little bit so that you don't get so um, severe in your belief system and stay open-minded. I mean, that's really the key to being able to stay fluid and flexible too, right? That's right. And if everybody's running to one area, like, find the cheapest, ugliest house, you can do the opposite. Find the best house. And you can still get a great price for the best house because some people, they want more money, but others just want to do it again. Mm -hmm. It's important to look at the flip side of things. Don't just grill your fish. You can fry it too, right? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. Awesome. Well, you know what, Matthew, you brought some golden nuggets to the show today. I certainly appreciate that. I am 100% positive the audience is going to love this episode because there's so many great takeaways. Um, yeah. So like, you know, that's how are we going to, how are we going to invest down South? Well, we're going to build a ship and, uh, find a course and make sure that it's solid to get us there to port and make sure that there's not too much taxes at that port too. So love that. Love that. Love that. Thank you so much, Matthew. Again, I appreciate you coming on the show, taking the time. I know you're very busy guy. If anybody wanted to reach out to you and talk a little bit more about investing um, down South or down the States, um, if they wanted to talk to you, maybe find out how they could work with you, how would they reach out to you? Well, through my website or my email, my email is simply Matthew with one T, M-A-T-H-E-W dot F at R-C-C-S-O-L dot com or my website R-C-C-S-O-L dot com. That's a great way to find me. And I have some podcasts on there as well for some free information. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So actually for anybody who's listening uh, right now, we have his bio page up on the website, letsgetrealestate.com. All that information is going to be there, how you can reach out to him uh, and a little bit of background information. His bio page is there. So just make sure you find him on our guest uh, guest pages. And with that, we are going to close out the show for today. Thank you again, Matt. This is Danielle Chason from the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. This is where we're bringing real people doing real estate. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and congratulations on improving your education real estate. Please leave a review only if you felt we provided value as it would really help us if you would leave a five-star review so that we can help reach a broader audience. And don't forget to comment what you enjoyed and tell us what you are looking to learn more about. As always, thanks for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.